and welcome. welcome. You're listening to Green Left Radio. It's breakfast on 3CR. Uh, here, here, here in the studio today is myself, Dennis, Jacob, and Zane. Shall we, uh, Jacob? Sh- shall we start off then with our uh, with our usual news items? Yeah, we can definitely do. Um, well, a lot of people would probably have heard about this, but um, last Friday night um, there was a Liberal Party fundraiser, and um, you know, in response, um, because you know the Liberal Party's inhumane treatment of refugees and their talk of proposing education cuts, there was um, at least there was a sort of protest organised outside um, their fundraiser. You know, um, with you know placards around refugee rights. Um, and, of course, education. Having been there myself, it was a, a very sort of chaotic experience. Um, yes. Very full-on kind of um, police presence. It was, you know... It, and uh, it was probably one of the most chaotic protests I've seen. But in sort of like some of the news reports um, and what actually what happened there, it's, um, there was a very unnecessary use of force from the police. In fact... Um, protesters were pepper sprayed by the police, yes. and it it wasn't. And there were in it was in cases where the protesters weren't actually provoking um, the police to do anything. Um, like I, there's a picture floating around of um, of an activist um, being pepper sprayed, and he's just standing. Behind a banner. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And yeah. So, so them, them actually standing about like you know, four or five meters away, and you you, you kind of see this just line of of mace just right uh, splashing right across uh, right across the right across the, the photograph. It's like it, it's yeah. It sort of clearly show, it clearly shows that a lot of the protests weren't actually interfering with anything. You know, the, the police just wanted to, uh, to keep them away from uh, really away from you know whatever was happening. Well, even it's it's yeah. you know uh, from someone who was at the protest, I um you know it may it seemed quite chaotic, but I did not think there was any sort of chance of yeah. like you know outright violence occurring because you know if you know the police were there, anyone who would have any protester who would have just I don't think any and no protester went up and insulted a a, a, a liberal party. Um, sort of attendee of that of that um, of that fundraiser. Mm-hmm. So they, 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 they may have been, they may have uh, been sheltered uh, at. Oh, but that, that's perf- uh, that's perf- um, yeah, I'm pretty sure in that context, that um, is for, um, in a protest, heckling is a little uh, uh, certainly part, uh, certainly part, part of it. I mean, that's uh, I mean, the whole po- the whole the whole initial point and um, I'll say of the protest was also uh, one of the other uh, important factors was of course you know the recent release of the Panama Papers and the uh, uh, the you know sort of the the it was really sort of sort of like an expression of, of outrage as we're all feeling at uh, at the attend well especially at the Liberal Party which yep. is which is being beefed up by businessmen and by individuals who stash millions of their dollars yep. in tax havens while the while the work, working people like us have to uh, you know have to uh, have to pay. More, yeah, yeah, we have to pay more tax, and pay more tax. and the liberal. Uh, it was funny. Um, I'll go back to just on the issue of poli- um, police there because, um, but before I move on to that, um, apparently, like the fundraiser costed like over a thousand eleven hundred dollars to enter in, and that's like two yeah. weeks of my income. <laughs> exactly, 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 exactly. It's you know you know when you when you have a, a protest of this uh, sort of. 
uh, this kind of, uh, I'll say, I'll say, the dimension of, uh, uh, the, like, a heck, a heckling isn't just sort of, uh, isn't, shouldn't just be allowed. This should be the whole point. Yes. You know, they should yeah. be able to, to hear the kind of outrage that the people are having here in Australia. Yep. And the uh, reason for it being is that, uh, we are, we are sick of rich people bif- uh, biffing up political parties. Yep. Using tax havens in order to, imp- Introduce more austerity and more neoliberalism in this country. Yeah. And yeah, going back um, to sort of um, reading the mainstream media, even though I was there, I did not personally see it. But apparently, um, someone as young as ten was actually, mm. or eleven. I'm eleven. Not sure of the exact age, but I read this morning in the ABC that um, it was reported that someone of that age was actually pepper sprayed by the police, um, by the police, and was screaming, "Oh, this hurts! It hurts!" Well, because and of course, it it wasn't even just pepper spray. It was actually capsicum spray, yeah, which yeah. is, um, as far as the research shows, it's much much worse than pepper spray. It's in every basically way. it's basically weaponized chili. Yeah, used, used on you. Yeah, yeah. And of course, even an uh, ABC cameraman and journalist was also um, pepper spray, which is probably why um, the ABC had, uh, from my from my perspective, from reading the media. Um, the ABC had a more synthetic kind of take on the yes. protest than, say, the Herald Sun. Though the Herald Sun, um, the initial article was actually pretty neutral, and then a later article came out which was basically just condemned the protesters, which is well, very typical of the oh, Herald yes, Sun. Of course, of course. And I'd be, I'd be, I'd be very worried if Herald Sun actually supported a protest uh, by us at any, uh, at any given point of time. Well, there's, um, well. So there's some there's been some examples of like um very conservative um like Alan Jones for example supports um the Stop CSG campaign but that's that's <laughs> sort of he would put those that that's the only kind of example yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no no that's true that's true <clears throat> yeah so um Another, some other sort of things that have been happening, you know, since we're on the subject of protests. Um, another thing that sort of, um, happened recently this Wednesday um, was the Student National Day of Action. Um, it was, I, from what I saw, actually, I fortunately I wasn't able to come to the whole entire of the protest, but I came um, early um, and I saw at least around, there was at least around, uh, 200, 200 to, to 300 people. 200 to 300 people. Gathered, gathered at the State Library here. And, um, and, the court, and they set uh, the next, um, um, following the rally, uh, they set another um, day of action, which mm-hmm. was the May 11th. May 11th. I actually think in, you know, the con- there's actually um, one, the student pro, there was like a big thing, like, you know, um, last year, well, I think, yeah, two years ago, about, you know, fee deregulation under Christopher Pine. Um, and that's in response to that, there were, lo- there were much larger protests. But in fact, I'll actually, I actually think that, um, in May, around May 11th will actually be, uh, a big, there will be probably bigger protests because the Liberal Party are, um, you know, talking about the possibility mm-hmm. of, you know, increasing, um, Increasing university fees, um, mm-hmm. yes. and well, it, it was never they ne- they never put it off the agenda. They all, they just postponed it. Like yep. they, uh, Turnbull actually said that specifically. As we're gonna, so we're gonna postpone the decision until later because they realize it has been such a huge, such a huge, uh, say blunder. The you know the repeated attempts by Tony Abbott previously to uh, 
uh, by, uh, by Abbott and Christopher Pine to, you know, to raise, uh, well, raise the fees to up to 100,000, uh, 100, 100, 100, uh, having, <coughs> sorry, having $100,000 uh, degrees in, in the universities. That's what, uh, you know, that wasn't, that didn't prove to be very popular at the time, so... Turnbull realizes mistake and has, changed, has kind of just uh, covered uh, covered it up, but um, it's, yeah, it, has, it clearly is still on their agenda, and uh, people need to be reminded uh, of, the, of, the, of the fight to con- of, the, of the need for the fight fight to continue yep. uh, against against any possible you know, intra- introduction of uh, further uh, fee increases or uh, you know or. Uh, even sort of uh, while we while we are sort of on the subject of uh, of tertiary education, there's also been the issue of of you know of hexer payments as, as well. Yeah, like they're, they're actually um, uh, liberals actually trying to reduce the amount of um, uh, of income uh, that student, uh, people can have before they can before they have to start repaying the debt. So from around like fifty three thousand dollars to forty thousand, and considering that. Um, uh, consider, uh, considering, considering that you know we are seeing less and less you know full-time jobs offering that kind of that, that, that kind of money, what we're going to end up with is you know a whole generation of people who actually have to uh, sort of pay pay more of their money hmm. with less wages. Yeah, isn't um, just a qu- um, quick question? Isn't there like um, right now the way the hex? Um, Sort of debt works is it actually doesn't pass on to your next of kin? Is there isn't the um, the Liberal government actually talking about that pos- um, possibility mm. of um, you know implementing that is a sort of war where you, um, your next of kin like your son mm. um, would, would or daughter would have to pay for your hex debt after mm. you've died? I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't really be that's surprised. Com- that's convenient, isn't it? Now yeah. we we can't have a death tax on super rich people to stop them just handing hundreds of millions of dollars to their child because that would be unfair that wouldn't be very nice yes but we can have uh hex debts being passed over to next of kin isn't that a little bit uh, of an inconsistency there <laughs> well it's quite typical i think of uh, of, of the um, of the neoliberal education slash uh, tax policy hmm. And um, so, how, how much time do we have before our first interview? Because um, I might not a not a massive amount of time. I'm I'm going to uh, get our first um, our first guest on the line shortly, which is John Passant from Canberra, Excellent. talking about the Panama leaks and progressive taxation. I don't know about everyone else, but I, I love a bit of a talk about tax on a yeah. Friday morning. Yeah, well, especially if, we, if we're talking about taxing the rich, you know, not as... Oh, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, Dennis was mentioning before, uh, you know, a lot of the dissent, um, a lot of the, you know, the anger at, that was at the um, expressed to the Liberal Party fundraiser. In fact, I actually got up to, you know, at a, a Liberal Party sort of person. I said, you know, go get a job, you know, because... And then someone added on to that, start paying your fair share of tax. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. <coughs> <coughs> sorry. Oh, I have. I Dennis was going to say something. You know? Sorry. Oh, uh-huh. you were going to say something in response. So, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. So, sorry. Um, interesting enough, going off. Um, there's been um, 
apparently um, yesterday there was um, a sort of rally in Western Australia. I'm not sure how many people came, but it was sort of a rally for the homeless. Yes. Um, I think it was in response um, to, the, um, to sort of the sort of um, police kind of um, oppression of homeless people. Um, which has always sort of been like, you know, an issue, um, because in, there was a recent sort of, um, news, a report, um, recently that, um, technically, you know, begging is considered illegal. Right. So basically you can, you can get fined for being homeless and not having a job. Yeah. It's bet, but that, the, it, the, the illogic of that is that you yeah. wouldn't have, um, if you got fined, you wouldn't have the money. To to actually they, to actually pay for the fund, and you'll have to beg for more money in order to do that. Yeah, and what sort of the logic of that? I think, well, the main the main sort of rationale for these laws is is this whole you know um, when it comes to homeless people, um, mm-hmm. there's this whole sort of um, the stigma is that you know for councils and you know um, local governments, you know homeless people are seen as like a blight on the streets, like something that people don't want to see. So a part of the rationale for making begging illegal is that they want to sort of put it out of mind, um, put it in the corner where no one can see it. Mm. So if you make begging illegal, you're less likely to see homeless people on, like, the streets of Melbourne, the CBD, mm-hmm. um, you know, because, you know, that makes people uncomfortable yes. so but as opposed they aren't actually um the government is not looking to you know address the root problem of homelessness which is you know the um the, the great sort of income equality that comes Inequ- from the fact that inequality, rich, exactly, rich yeah. people don't pay their fair share of tax um mm-hmm. and the and if you know we'll obviously be talking about this in the interview you know if the if um the rich were taxing we would we would actually have the money to provide mm-hmm. for public Social housing spending. um social services that would um, would address this problem of homelessness. Exactly, yeah. Alrighty, so this is Green Life Radio, and this morning we have got uh, John Passant on the right. Passant or Passant? Passant. Uh, Passant, <laughs> okay. Um, so John Passant is um, a member of Solidarity, the socialist organisation slash party. Uh, is a former assistant commissioner at the Australian Tax Office in charge of international tax reform. <clears throat> and John is a PhD candidate at Australian National University, ANU, in Canberra, and will be giving a talk today at ANU on tax, inequality and challenges for the future. John also runs the En Passant blog, uh, which we'll post a link to at the Greenleaf Radio Facebook page later, and it's well worth a look. It's a uh, bunch of stuff on, on a range of topics there. Uh, welcome, John. Hi, Glenn. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? Good. Uh, we've also got Jacob and Dennis in the studio this morning. Yeah. Morning, yeah. morning, John. Hi, Jacob. How, hi, Dennis. And uh, my mum, Linda, is sitting in as well, but uh, I think she's just uh, more observing at this stage as well. <laughs> Hello, Linda. <laughs> uh, okay, so... The uh, the Panama leaks, John. Uh, as someone who's comes from a tax background and bringing a bit of a radical perspective, what is the significance of these Panama leaks, and uh, how do how do the one percent use offshore accounts and and weird sleight of hand things to kind of hide their money and, and dodge tax and stuff? Oh, well, that's a, a really good question, and uh, I don't have half an hour to explain how you <laughs> use 
tax havens, but basically there are two things about tax havens. One is they've got low tax or no tax, and the second is they've got secrecy attached to them. So if people want to hide their affairs from, uh, say, the ATO, then they'd have an account in a, a tax haven, and it's very difficult for the ATO to get the information about both that account and any income that's being earned on that. That's not to say that um, these uh, the big business doesn't use tax havens not for the hiding reason but for um, so-called legitimate tax planning reasons so that they'll route their income through tax havens to make sure that they don't pay tax anywhere else in the world until they get it back to their home base. And um, one of the issues here is, well, why should they be able to do that? And if you look at... Uh, there's a famous quote from the former chair of Google, Eric Schmidt, who said something along the lines of, why do we organise our affairs through tax havens? And he said, you know, um, we're not going to turn down big savings from using tax havens. Uh, it's called capitalism and we're about... Uh, we're a capitalist... Uh, uh, we're a capitalist company. And I think that's the point, that what drives a lot of big business to invest through or use tax havens is actually that they see tax as a cost to business rather than as a contribution to society. So hmm. you see that what's come out of the papers so far, the leak by uh, whoever it was of the Mo Mossack Fonseca um, revelations of the 11.5 million different documents, is that uh, as a consequence 800 Australians are being investigated. Now, this company is not the top company that does this. It's not even in the top three, I don't think. So it's just the tip of the iceberg. And if you look at the Tax Justice Network study a, a few years ago, it estimated there's between 21 trillion and 32 trillion held offshore in tax havens. So if you do the maths, you work that out, that could be up to uh, about a, a trillion dollars of Australian assets held offshore in these tax havens. And so we're passing up perhaps 30 or 40 billion dollars in tax. So I think the thing about uh, tax havens is that they're an integral part of capitalism. And indeed, <laughs> the argument is that the real tax havens are not the, the subsidiaries like uh, the British Virgin Islands and Panama and Vanuatu and so forth, but actually the biggest tax haven is the City of London and uh, US states like Delaware and Nevada and Wyoming, which from which the initial flun, funds flow to go into the tax haven. So we're talking really about the nature of capitalism and how it organises globally to get the best returns for it to, to continue to uh, accumulate capital. Hmm. So if we want to <clears throat> if we want to try and tackle this problem, how do we do that given that uh, a, a single like Australia on its own might implement stronger tax policies to, to target the rich and get them to pay their fair share of tax and not hide it in offshore accounts, but how how do we, won't they just move their money somewhere else offshore? Won't there just be kind of capital flight or moving money around? Like, it seems that in order to tackle this issue, it, it's got to be a global response. Oh, absolutely, and that's part of the problem. Uh, you need a global response by global capitalist countries or global capitalist governments. And um, as soon as you start thinking about these governments have intricate links with 
the tax avoiders and the big businesses that utilise tax havens, you start to think, well, are they really seriously going to do anything about tax haven use? And that clearly comes out in terms of the relationship between David Cameron and his benefits that he's received through tax havens, um, through his father in the UK who had major investments through tax havens, and his relationship to big business. And, of course, we've got... In Australia, we've got a, a Prime Minister who invests in hedge funds in the, in the Cayman Islands and, of course, who was a merchant banker who would have utilised these sorts of arrangements as well. So I think um, the question of cooperation is a double-edged sword. That is that tax authorities and governments will say we need to cooperate, but the reality is that they won't. And the biggest sticking point here is actually the US. The US thinks that the current arrangements benefit its companies and enable its companies to pay tax in the US at a higher rate or more tax than they would if, if that, that income was taxed in, in other countries. And so it's the biggest sticking point to actually addressing um, the, the question of tax havens. It's dragged its feet on this. And even when countries like Australia last year were saying we're going to attack tax havens, the reality is that what they do is fairly minor. I think, you know, there can be some major changes that uh, we in Australia could start to introduce, which is perhaps criminalising tax avoidance. Now, mm. I know there are difficulties with that, but also uh, putting on uh, transfers to tax havens, uh, putting on a withholding tax to that. But as you say, as soon as you do that, they just avoid coming through Australia. So what's the real issue? And I think it raises this wider question of we've seen demonstrations in Iceland against the Prime Minister who was, in, who was named in the Panama Papers and has since resigned. We've seen democracy demonstrations springing up in Paris and the rest of France against uh, particular laws that the French are introducing. Hmm. And you see the rise of Bernie Sanders, the rise of Jeremy Corbyn. Hmm. So there's a sense in which people are saying, we've had enough. And I think the Panama Papers are part of that growing anger, or feeding that that, that anger and reinforcing the idea it's us and them. And so the answer I don't think is necessarily in capitalist governments alone operating to, to address this issue. It's actually in you and I campaigning around a whole range of different issues, but including the tax issues, if they arise, to put pressure on our government to start funding adequately the services that we want, such as health and education. And as soon as we start saying, well, we want better health and education spending, and the government says, oh, you have to live within your means, then the answer is Panama. Well, you know, we don't have to live within our means. It's about time you started taxing big business. Mm. Uh, it's not just through tax havens. I'll make the point that the ATO released recently some papers which talk about how much tax uh, various big businesses pay, and it shows that about 36% of big business pays no income tax, and on top of that, about another third pay a, an effective tax rate of less than 10%. And not all of that goes through tax havens. So you've got um, the tax issues here in Australia as well. So can you tax rich companies here in Australia? Of course you can. You can tax them on the revenue rather than their profit and say to Google, well, you earned... Three, three billion from Australia, so irrespective of whether you made a profit or not here, we're going to pay, you're going to charge you 3% on that, so pay up your 90, $90 million dollars or whatever it happens to be. And mm. the, the money's uh, quite staggering. It's about $454 billion dollars that remains untaxed in big business hands. So we could impose a 3% levy on that, which is what GetUp argues for, and mm. we'd end up with an extra 14 or 15 billion. We could start saying, why don't we tax the wealthy? 
um, have a net wealth tax. We could say, why don't we increase the, the progressive nature of our tax system by having extra rates and higher rates at the higher end of town? Yeah, and now, just, these things would just require on that. a push from below. Sorry, it would mean mobilisation from below around all mm. of the social justice issues that we're currently operating separately on. Mm. Uh, we, we will just have to wrap it up soon, but just on this issue of uh, a better progressive tax system, can you just comment a bit on what the company tax rate uh, is now compared to, say, 50 years ago and what the tax rate on the highest earners is, people making over 180 grand today versus, say, 50 years ago? Yes, if you look at the tax rates, uh, previously they were in the 60s for the highest tax rate from memory for those over, well it wasn't even over 180 grand, it was uh, the highest tax rate, uh, More, I think it was 60% cut in at a lower rate than that in the past. Hmm. Uh, with companies it was 39% and then it was 49% before that. So you have, uh, previously you had a much higher level of taxes on rich people and on companies and that process of deleveraging them, of cutting them, has been going on since about 1985 and 1983, since the election of the Hawke Labor government. Mm. And you can see uh, the consequence of that is that the tax system has become less progressive and less able to address growing inequality. And that's the other issue. Inequality's been getting worse, and part of the reason for that is that we've got a tax system that's been inadequately dealing with uh, inequality and has been reducing the level of tax on companies and on the on the rich and the powerful, and also those tax concessions with superannuation and so forth. You know, where people are living on a, on on um, pensions of six hundred thousand dollars a year and not paying tax. Just outrageous. Just mm. outrageous. The game is rigged in favour of the rich and powerful, and that's what we've got to change. And I think that the Panama Papers show that clearly, and that's what we need to address. For real. All right, well, we better um, move on, but thank you so much for having a chat with us this morning. Oh, my pleasure, Zane. I'm get, I get very head up about this stuff. So <laughs> excuse yeah, my yeah. passion showing through. <laughs> yeah, me, me too. It's, uh, <laughs> Thanks for the interview. Scandalous, yeah. All right, and uh, I hope the presentation goes well today at uh, yeah, so ANU. Well. Thank you. All right, yeah, cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you. All righty, and that was John Passant, a uh, member of Solidarity and resident left-wing tax boffin, and check out the On Passant blog. So um, I, I call him John Passant because his blog is called On Passant, <laughs> like the chess move. And, uh, yeah, that's that's regularly updated, talking on all sorts of issues. All right. Well, uh, well, on the topic of taking on, um, you know, tax dodges and uh, the the big uh, the big industry owners um, over in over in Western Australia in uh, in Fremantle, one of one of our own, Chris Jenkins, has actually been campaigning for key sectors of the economy to be publicly owned. So he's uh, our the Socialist Alliance uh, candidate for Fremantle, Chris uh, Chris Jenkins, who is a 26-year-old uh, nurse at the Fremantle Hospital. Is uh, takes aim at corporate uh, rotters. So, outlining some of the key themes of Social Alliance campaign, Jenkins said that both here and around the world, we need we need we need a society that looks after the billions and not the billionaires. Some of Australia's biggest corporations have been paying absolutely no tax, and many more don't pay the full corporate rate. Even though successive Labor and coalition governments have cut it from 48% to only 30% today. So it's great. It's certainly, it's certainly great to see a uh, you know a, a genuine a genuine socialist 
uh, actually battling and campaigning on this on these very issues in the in the upcoming elections. Yeah, and not not only that, um, you know, Chris Jenkins, you know, takes a, a very firm stance against you know mandatory detention of, of asylum course. seekers, um, and um, you know, when we look at um, um. You know the the sort of surge of Corbyn and Bernie Sanders. You know it's candidates sort of like that Chris like Chris Jenkins that are probably really sort of the cl- and that run in like um, these elections that are really the closest thing you have. Even though clearly they have not reached the sort of ma- they haven't appe- um, um, rallied the masses at the same level as um, Corbyn mm-hmm. and um, Sanders. But it's all really just it's all. Yeah. A stepping stone to something like that, you know. But we have to, but we we have to keep in mind that uh, both uh, Sanders and Corbyn have been, you know, uh, have been political figures in the background for yep. decades yeah. before they got their before they, before they got their shining moment when people were finally yep. uh, fed up with austerity and neoliberalism being continued. Yep. Well, yeah, Corbyn has um, been around since uh, 1983. So 1983. Three, yeah. so, so the last 32. Uh, 32 years he's been 32 or 33 years he's been the MP for Islington North and uh, Sanders has been a um, um, has been sort of in Congress in Congress uh, in the US Congress for the past I think uh, around about 30 years as an independent first as an independent congressman and then an independent uh, senator but it it was um, it really came it really came, came about when uh, there was this one. Finally, there was this opportunity to unite all the anti-austerity, anti-neoliberal, anti-corporate um, forces together under 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 a, a candidate who was proven to uh, well, to be independent, consistent, left-wing, and mm-hmm. um, uh, you know willing to take on. New corporations, and that's exactly, exactly what we need yeah. here. And yeah, well, I think the most other most significant thing with Corbyn and Sanders, other than the fact that they've both been sort of the foreground politically, is they've always been always seen the value of you know grassroots activism. You exactly. know, there's like Corbyn was part of like you know the anti-apartheid protests, yes. and Bernie Sanders was part of like the civil the rights civil protests rights movement, back in yeah. um, during the. Um, the 70s. In fact, he was um, an attendee at the "I Have a Dream" speech, and of course, mm-hmm. probably no one would have suspected back then that yes. that young man over there would have turned out to make such a big splash in American politics years later. And that's kind of an incredible thing. So yeah. yeah. Alrighty. Um, so there's um, an interesting update this week. Um, Councillor Sue Bolton from the Socialist Alliance, who is on Moreland Council, um, reports that there has been a resolution passed by Moreland Council this week resolving that the Council will seek a treaty with the Wurundjeri people, the original owners. So uh, we've got Sue on the line for a bit of an update about that, because that's a pretty... I'm certainly not aware of such a uh, resolution before by a local government, so it's an interesting development. Good morning, Sue. Hi, how's it going? Pretty good. Um, So could you tell us a bit about this uh, resolution? Well, I've actually been thinking about moving a motion about treaty for some time, and I sort of first raised it with the local um, traditional owners of Wurundjeri, last year but at that time they had a lot on their plate so they weren't in a position to sort of um, do anything about it because they felt that really um, to do something I really need to have 
the support of the traditional owners. Mm. And then I think what happened was at the beginning of this year, there was a big conference, a big consultation or conference of around 500 um, First Nations people from across Victoria is very representative. And some of the activists, some of the community members, I think they might be the Indigenous activists in the um, Northern, in the um, National Tertiary Education Union, moved a motion for treaty, not recognition. And um, basically the motion got up 499 to 1. Wow. And it was overwhelming. And... So then the State Aboriginal Affairs Minister made a positive statement about the need for treaty and has started a consultation process in the community with, you know, four regional gatherings being planned. And I think also that sort of, that overwhelming support of that conference, which was never, I don't think it was ever reported in the age um, on the mainstream media. It's been reported in um, alternative media. Um, Green Left Weekly and also I think New Matilda or The Guardian, one of those two. Um, so, you know, that is a massive, was a massive, uh, impact that that conference had and it sort of has pushed some, a certain level of action by the Aboriginal Affairs Minister and that gave the conference to Wurundjeri, I think, to move a motion, um, which I think, I believe was unanimous in the Wurundjeri Tribal Council. And so they sent a letter to council and I moved a motion uh, on Wednesday night to for the council to begin treaty discussions with the Wurundjeri. Hmm. As far as I know, this is the first, um, and I know Community Radio 3CR is um, planning, wants to uh, be involved in treaty discussion with Wurundjeri as well. Hmm. Um, and I, But I also think this result was really only possible because of the long campaign by people to win back the Ballot Maroop Aboriginal school site for the community to be used as a First Nations community hub and then involving the Wurundjeri in that process, in that campaign. And I think those two things really laid the basis for me being able to move a treaty motion which wasn't just dismissed but was actually voted up Hmm. And um, do you think that the the Labor government's um, you said before the the Aboriginal Affairs Minister or the Indigenous Affairs Minister at, uh, in Victoria has been uh, talking about that consultation process with a view to having a treaty in Victoria. Do you reckon that's also influenced the willingness of because you would have had to have Greens and ALP councillors vote with you on that motion for that to get up. Um, I think you're absolutely right, Zane. I think the fact that the Aboriginal Affairs Minister started this process helped uh, win over the Labor councillors. So the only councillor who voted against was the DLP-aligned councillor, John Kavanagh. Um, Everyone else voted in favour. So that was, like, quite amazing. And I think the Moreland Council motion will also put pressure back on the state government to keep moving forward on this issue Mm. because, um, you know, just because the Aboriginal Affairs Minister says something doesn't necessarily mean that the whole of the government (laughs) supports that direction. Mm. Um, And also we've got to make sure that 
the Moreland Council and what comes out of these treaty negotiations between Moreland and the Wurundjeri is something, is a really, is a proper treaty and with real worthwhile rights. So it can't just be a tokenistic thing. It can't just be like one of these um, reconciliation memorandums of understanding that all the councils have. Mm. It's got to be... uh, it's got to be a real document with rights mm. attached to it um, and recognition of sovereignty. So we've got to watch, you know, kind of the motion's gone through. And I believe it's the first time a local council in Australia has done this, agreed to this. Um, but we've also got to watch the implementation of this, is that this doesn't get, you know, undermined in the process as well. Mm. So I think it is a great step forward. Yeah, nice. All right, um, we are going to have to keep moving because we've got uh, a couple of more interviews to do today. But uh, thank you very much for the interview and, and for the update, and we'll, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that. And, uh, yeah, we'll look at how potentially, um, yeah, grassroots campaigns can help uh, p- push that and steer that in the right direction and, as you say, try and stop that from being, uh, you know, watered down, turned into something um, counterproductive. Actually, can I just make one very quick, quick thing? Yeah, sure. Um, is that if people want to support this treaty process yep. and make sure it keeps going in the right direction, people might want to come to the Moreland Anti-Racism Rally on Saturday the 28th of May. Um, it'll be taking up the three big issues of racism today, mm. um, of Aboriginal rights, treatment of refugees and Islamophobia. But some of the First Nations crew want to use it to push for a treaty and will probably take up a petition for a treaty on the day. Um, so I think that would be great if people can come along to that. It'll meet at 11am at the Coburg Library. And if you're part of a group, if anyone listening is part of a group that would like to endorse it, um, they should just contact me. Um, there's also a Facebook event for the page. For the uh, sorry, Facebook event for for the rally. Okay, great. We'll um we'll post a link to that as well to the um, Green Left Radio Facebook. So if anyone wants to check that out and um yeah get get yourself down as attending that event and get behind it. All right. Great. Thanks. Thanks again, Sue. Bye. Uh, and continuing with our news items now. The <coughs> Uh, one of the more, uh, I'd say, uh, quite sort of eye-opening uh, articles we have in the in this issue of Green Left Weekly is about the Great Barrier Reef and the coral bleach uh, bleaching that's been hitting it as a result of uh, global temperature rises. Got uh, Ove, Ove, Hugh Goldberg and uh, Tyrone Ridgway writing here for us. As we write, the much-cherished Great Barrier Reef is experiencing the devastating effects of coral bleaching. The Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority has declared severe coral bleaching underway on the reefs uh, north of Cooktown. El Nino and climate change have driven record-breaking temperatures worldwide. 2015 was the hottest year ever, and 2016 has continued the trend. The sea sea temperatures have also been at record-breaking levels. In the oceans, we have... We have known for more than a decade that rapidly warming ocean temperatures present a serious threat to coral reefs, the world's most biologically diverse ecosystems. 
and, uh, they, and they just comment what exactly is happening to the to the corals themselves in the um, in the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, the uh, small changes in sea temperatures re re disrupt the special relationship between corals and tiny marine algae that lives inside their tissue. These algae supply 90% of the energy corals require for growth and re reproduction. And when corals ble uh, bleach, they expel uh, the algae. So the conditions stay warm for a long, a long, uh, a long time in the, in the oceans. Corals start to die either directly fr or indirectly from starvation and disease. The loss of corals is coupled with the loss of fish and other organisms that ultimately determine opportunities for tourism and fisheries for hundreds of millions of people around the world. Not to mention that it completely, it permanently destroys one of the, one of the greatest uh, and most recognizable landmarks, uh, natural landmarks here in Australia. And that that would be a shame because I actually haven't visited the Great Barrier Reef. Me neither. <laughs> no, I, haven't, I haven't been to the you know to the Twelve Apostles e either. But Great Barrier Reef is something that's that, that well, it's not just uh, a tourist land landmark, but it's also uh, a, a very important. It's 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 like it's like, it's like our underwater am Amazon, really. Mm. Yeah, it's um one one of the um things in the article actually that um that mentions as well is it basically represents sort of like you know um that the failure to access um to to act decisively on climate change, you know, will yeah. negate kind of any attempt to sort of solve the more kind of local problems because um, some people, you know, there's been some arguments um, put forward against acting on climate change. It's like, oh, we actually got to solve these more um, against, <laughs> you know, when it comes to Great Bar um you know, sometimes it goes both ways. Sometimes people argue, oh, we don't need to worry about the Great Barrier Rift because we need to solve climate change. Yeah. Or we, we, can't, um, we don't need to worry about climate change. We have to solve the Great Barrier Rift. But when it shows... This sort of art, um, research sort of shows that those issues are very, these environmental issues are very interconnected. Exactly, interrelated. Like one causes the other. You know, climate change uh, disruption is what is causing the Great Barrier Reef to disappear. But then, but then, but then, there's also been the uh, you know the, the classical argument of well, you know, we need to focus on the economy rather than the, rather than the environment. You know, we need to prioritize what's happening now. Well, this, but I think, Great Barrier Reef is sort of the symbol. Of what can happen to the well, to the rest of the environment throughout the whole throughout the whole world, you know, mm -hmm. what's and what it's going to cost humanity once landmarks like this disappear and once you know it's living it becomes completely invi uh, uh, once plant becomes completely inhabitable inhabitable for well not just for the corals but for the humans as well. Yeah, and I think it's pretty interesting because it's pretty. It's a canary in the coal mine, it's, except it's not a little tiny bird. It's the largest living organism on the planet. Mm. And Australia is the world's largest coal exporter, but we're also the driest populated continent, and yes. we're home to the Great Barrier Reef. So I think it's an interesting peculiarity of the Australian corner of the human population and the whole capitalism versus the masses thing mm. that mm. the Australian working class, I think, is going to witness some of the early and more terrifying and insidious impacts of climate change. And we're also in a position to go and uh, lock ourselves to the gates of coal mines and, you know, coal seam gas wells and have exactly. big protests and... and you know, have green bands in coal-fired power stations and all that sort of stuff. Exactly. So yeah. yeah, yeah. Shut down the pits. 
Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, back when the Paris Climate Summit was on, the Australian protests were among the largest in the world yes. at the time. Yes, indeed. indeed. Well, we, uh, in Melbourne, we had you know o- over a hundred thousand. I think uh, just over the, the climate, the climate action march that was o- organised here. Yeah, it was you know stretched all the way from State Library, uh, almost, but basically almost to the to the steps of State Parliament. So yeah, it was incredible. Yes, that is correct. You're listening to 3CR, by far Melbourne's most radical radio station, and on the phone this morning we've got Liam Flannerty. Liam is a Brisbane-based member of the Socialist Alliance and has recently returned from living in Brussels for a while. Uh, Liam will be speaking about left-wing politics and social movements in Europe as part of the Socialism for the 21st Century Conference coming up from May 13 to 15 at Sydney Uni. Welcome, Liam. G'day. So, what's been happening? <coughs> That's a good question. What, here or uh, over in the old world? Yeah, over in the, the old world is what we want to talk about. Yep. Yeah. Um, oh, that's a tough question. Well, look, things are things are really interesting. They've they've been interesting in Europe for quite a while now, um, but they've become sort of exciting, interesting again hmm. because uh, maybe six months ago, if, if you had have asked me that same question, I would have said, "Well, things are interesting, but looking a little bit shaky." Hmm. But um, we've seen a resurgence, another resurgence of of popular movements, um, particularly in France. Um, yeah, it's pretty exciting, hey? It's been going on in France over the last little mm-hmm. yeah, the little while. Democracy spring. It's yeah. quite in, it's quite incredible. I mean, anybody who's been following French politics for a while probably shouldn't have been surprised <laughs> by this. <laughs> I mean, I think we all were. Um, but we probably shouldn't have been surprised because it's been such um it's been on a low simmer French politics for quite a while. Like François Hollande, the, the, the so called socialist president, is the least popular president in the history of well, since polling in France was introduced in like the sixties or seventies. So he's wow. the least popular president. His popularity is about twelve percent or maybe sometimes it fluctuates up to fifteen percent, but like that, that's his approval rating. Right. Um, the unemployment has been over 10% since about 2012. Um, youth unemployment, I think, is about 25 26% and has stayed at that spot for a long time. And basically, there's just this feeling that, you know, Francois Hollande was elected in 2012 against Nicolas Sarkozy as this kind of, like, we're going to stop this logic of austerity. We're going to create jobs. We're going to move the economy forward. We're going to be a, a kind of a social, um, socially progressive government, and so on. And basically, they came in, and, and we're going to we're going to stand up to Angela Merkel and the EU and the Troika. And they got in, and what did they do? Well, they immediately went over and had a chat with Merkel and said, "No, no, we're not going to do any of that. We're going to just keep going with the austerity stuff, like you like you say." And basically, it's just been a piece of you know the, the government's been a joke for the last four years, and mm. so people have been pissed. But um, that that sentiment of, of anger and and this um, disgruntledness has tended to um, once the demoralisation set in that ah oh, François Hollande didn't do what we wanted, and you know we've been building this campaign to get rid of Nicolas Sarkozy, but now it's basically the same or worse. 
once the demoralization set in, well, then it was right for people like um, Marine Le Pen of the far right, the National Front, to step in and, and um, capitalize. And, mm. this, and that's been happening for quite a while now in France. There's been a swing to the far right. And the left has been demoralized and fragmented, as they tend to be. Um, and so now it's sort of like, finally, there's a new movement in France kind of taking back the initiative for, you know, socially progressive politics, pro-people politics, pro-democracy politics, um, and taking back that the kind of momentum that was with Marine Le Pen and these, these racist politics, um, Islamophobic, um, anti-immigrant kind of politics. And so the, the Nuit Debout, or, which people are trying to translate as Up All Night, which just sounds like a fun slumber party, but I think it's, it, it's sort of more <laughs> technically, <laughs> more technically, um, but less perhaps eloquently translates to like Night of Standing Up. Um, so it doesn't sound, doesn't quite roll off the tongue like Up All Night, but it's, it's more like it's a night for standing up for stuff. Uh. Um, and so basically they go, it's like in Paris, there's the Place de, de la République, which is like the main square, and they go and they occupy it and they stay up all night and they talk politics, they have music, they have poetry, they have, um, you know, they've, they've, they've set up little commissions now, they call them. So I suppose it's to kind of joke about the, the, bureaucrat, the bureaucratic kind of EU and, and government. They have their own commissions now. They have their ecology commission, their feminism commission, and all this sort of stuff where they, they meet and discuss these sorts of ideas. So that's, that's really, that's really, um, uh, an incredible boost. I mean, it, it, it's sort of like Occupy Wall Street, right? That, that changed the kind of debate in, in the US or the Indignados in, um, in, in, uh, Spain back in 2000. And, when was that? 2011? Yeah. So yeah, that's that's kind of the situation. We don't know where it's going to go, but it has. It's there's now. I think they're occupying sixty different. There are sixty different towns across France, and it's spread to parts of Spain and Germany. So it's it's a great new development, basically. Yeah, so, so that's kind of a rough. <laughs> that's where we're at in a way. Yeah. Uh, so Liam, we have to um, sort of wrap up soon. Um, but um, yeah. I wanted to sort of ask you about you know sort of. Um, uh, um, about sort of pro, um, far sort of left parties in France because um, you're mm. talking sort of about the rise of the far right and mm. um, like left front. Um, what can you tell us uh, about them? You know what and their sort of implications for French pol- France politics. Yeah, well, this is a really really complicated thing. So basically, since the left front, they had a very good campaign in 2012 with Jean-Luc Mélenchon as the head. Um, uh, for the presidential elections, but they didn't do quite as well as they thought they were going to do, and Marine Le Pen came out in front of them. And that sort of demoralized them all a bit. And then they sort of had a bit of a squabble over strategy. So the left front is, a, is a, just to explain, is the Communist Party, the left party, which was a split from the, from the governing Socialist Party, and then a lot of independents, which have now formed a third party called Ensemble or Together. And they've basically not found a common strategy since 2012, and they are on the verge of complete collapse as a as a as a front. And basically, I, I have to say that I think the left front is, is dead. Hmm. And what this and what this means is that it's given all this space to the far right. But and there's all these problems with the with this very chauvinistic, very egotistical politics amongst the leadership of a lot of those parties. 
Um, but I think there's a lot of them now who are thinking, well, if we can embed ourselves in this Nuit Debout movement and if all these big social protests that have been happening against um, the new, new labour laws that have been tried to, to, to be introduced by the government, that they could form something new, form a, a more organically related um, organisation that's sort of in touch with these new movements. I hope that's what's going to happen. There's been moves towards that by different sections, the Greens, who are sort of always in dialogue with people in the left front. There's always been the possibility of unity. Um, yeah, the, the Communist Party, a lot of independence. So, you know, there's, there's a possibility of something new. But the left front, I think, I mean, I, I can't say for sure I'm not there, but I think we can say that that's pretty much its time is up as an instrument for moving left forward and something new is going to have to emerge um, with a new strategy and a new relationship to the social movement. Mm. Yeah. Something like a French Podemos, kind of like Podemus, what's happening yeah. in Spain. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, I think this is some, because what it is, is Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who was the head of, well, was the figurehead of the, the left front, has basically unilaterally declared himself independently as the French presidential candidate uh, for the left for 2017. <laughs> And that's just pissed everyone off yeah. on the left. Sean Luke, that's not how it works, bro. <laughs> that's not how it goes. That's not how it goes. And basically, the Nuit de Boo, the, the night of standing up, the protesters who are out on the street occupying the, the, the squares see him as part of the system. Hmm. They don't really see him as any, any different to a lot of the other characters because he's just so identified with, with the mainstream. I mean, he, his politics are quite good. But his way he's gone about it, and in fact he says a lot of the things that they say, but the way he's gone about it means that he's quite alienated from, from them and they feel alienated from him. Mm. And I don't think he's going to be able to bridge the gap. <laughs> and so something new, something more, like, yeah, perhaps some kind of Podemos, very anti-establishment politics, very, like, a real outsider. Like, you know, Bernie Sanders, even though he was in, Senate, in the Senate all, all the time, and same with Jeremy Corbyn, an MP for the Labour Party, they both managed to capture this outsider status. Mm. And I think France is going to need a figure like that as well. Jean-Luc Mélenchon doesn't capture this outsider status. He was, he's just too associated with, he's too identified with the machinations of this, this political theatre that's been going on in, in, in France mm. for so long with no, no seeming benefit for the people. So I think some, yeah, some kind of Podemos or something is going to have to emerge to, to really move things forward. And I hope the left, the more established left, um, positions itself to be part of whatever emerges. Hmm. Cool. Uh, interesting yeah. developments. And, yeah. And you're going to be speaking about some of this in a little bit more depth in Sydney from the 13th to the 15th of May at the Socialism Conference. That is conference. correct. That is absolutely correct. I think I'm on the 14th. I'm going to talk about how this the anti-austerity movement relates to the um, anti-racism movement in, in um, Europe in general. Yeah. Sweet action. Well, looking forward to that. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, fully sick. <laughs> uh, well, the website for that is socialismforthe21stcentury.org. That's all lowercase. And the 21 out of 21st century is numerals. Because if it was words, it would be a very long website name. Indeed. indeed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, check out that website. Uh, get some 
organised some transport to Sydney and, uh, yeah, come and, come and have a chat with Liam and, and a bunch of other people from across the globe. All right, thanks heaps, Liam. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, no Very good. Uh, yeah. Cheers, well, talk again. Indeed, talk again soon. Yeah. Uh, so this morning... We've got a special guest in the studio to do the weekly activist calendar. It's me mum, Linda Alcorn. <laughs> okay, mum. Hello. Um, so, oh, if you could just make sure you speak uh, right into that mic. Um, don't get too close to it. Just hang on. And just by way of an introduction, my mum has done a lot of... Um, international solidarity and fundraising and um, overseas uh, kind of aid work over the years uh, has raised vast amounts of money for, for World Vision and is a high school art teacher and has been a rank and file member of the New South Wales Teachers Federation for over 25 years. Hmm. And I remember when I was probably about eight years old, and my sister would have been about three or something, we went to a Teachers' Federation protest at um, the New South Wales Parliament, and we got on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald, <laughs> sitting in the gutter drawing. So. <laughs> Good on your mum, getting me into international solidarity and trade union politics from a young age indeed. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> All right, so what's, uh, what's in the activist calendar this week? Okay, the first one's a conference, Solving Our Unemployment Crisis. Eleven job seekers uh, competing for each vacancy, more for low-skilled jobs. 750,000 unemployed workers, more than one million underemployed. New Start Allowance, $380 below the poverty line per fortnight. 1.3 billion job services industry discredited and dysfunctional. Bullying and harassment at work for the dull sites. Um, it doesn't have to be this way. What should we demand of the federal government? Can we build a united position? Join the discussion. Keynote speakers are Bill Mitchell from the Centre of Full Employment and Equity, Geraldine Kearney, from, uh, President of the ACTU, and Cassandra Goldie from ACOS. It's 9am to 4pm on Tuesday the 19th of April at the FEU conference rooms and that's in Clarendon Street, South Melbourne and it's hosted by the uh, Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Uh, the next one's a rally and that's on Wednesday the 20th of April at 3pm in Flagstaff Garden City and uh, it's called Free Cannabis Community 420. And they'll be celebrating with a peaceful act of mass civil disobedience throughout the, um, throughout the event as a protest against cannabis prohibition. Our message is simple, prohibition hurts people. Uh, the next is a book launch, A Lover's Country. Stuart Rees discusses his debut, debut novel with writer and commentator Samar Sabawi. It explores a passionate relationship between Tom Markson and his much younger Jewish lover, Naomi Brenner, both of whom support a Palestinian leader who knows the details of a murder and a massacre. That one's on Wednesday, and that's at 6pm, Wednesday the 20th, at Reading's Bookstore. Uh, the entry's free, but they do ask if you could please ring them and book. Public Forum, Don't Sell Out People for Corporate Profits. That's on Thursday, Thursday, April 21. 
If the government gets its way and pushes the TPP through Parliament, multinational corporations will have enormous powers to remove our hard-won regulations and protection of local jobs and industries, affordable medicines, our clean environment, workers' rights, clean food production, and undermine our national sovereignty and our democratic right to decide what kind of country we want to live and work in. Sorry, what is TPP? Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Aha, thank you. (laughs) And the speakers are Jed Kearney, he's president of the ACTU. She. She. Ah, Jed. Comes from the nurses' union from memory. Yes, she does. She's 25 years as a nurse. Ah, right. Jane Kelsey, New Zealand academic, long-time TPP campaigner. Kelvin Thompson, ALP member for Wills. Deborah Gleeson, uh, Public Health Association. That's at the Lower Melbourne Town Hall on Thursday, the 21st, in Swanston Street, Sydney, at 7pm. Remembrance and resistance, 30 years on from Chernobyl. If you told me it was 20 years, I would have gone, oh, yeah, 30 years, unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Tuesday, April 26th. On the 30th anniversary of the Chernobyl disaster, join ACE and the Medical Association for Prevention of War for a night of short films and talks to remember the Chernobyl disaster and celebrate ongoing resistance to the nuclear industry. Joining us will be special guest Will Bill Williams from MAPW. Uh, films to be announced. Uh, the it's Tuesday, the 26th of April, 6.30pm. Loop Project Space and Bar, 23 Mayer's Place in the city. And that's $15 for waged, $10 for unwaged. Public meeting after Paris. What next for the environmental movement? And note there's a change date for this event. It's Thursday, the 28th. The speakers are Hans Bayer, Associate Professor. Professor at Melbourne Uni, member of Socialist Alliance, Nicola Paris, activist and coordinator of Counteract, Anitra Nelson, Associate Professor of RMIT, uh, convener of the Australian uh, Environmental Justice Project, and David Spratt, climate campaigner and co-author of Climate Code Red. That's Thursday, the 28th of April at 7pm. The entry's free. That's at the New International Bookshop at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton, and they ask that you uh, go to the website for bookings. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Thanks, Anna. <coughs> All right. Uh, what do we got? I reckon uh, a little bit more news, and then I might get Spike on the line for an update about the Bendigo Street occupation. So, uh, since we've... Um uh, we, we were talking about the issue of what was happening in Europe. In international news in uh, Greenland Weekly this week, uh, Dick Nichols writes from Barcelona, the, le- the, sp- the left in Spain denounces the EU-Turkey refugee deal. The Spanish Parliament was the scene of a sharp clash on April 6th over the March 18th European Union-Turkey Pact of Shame that will return up to 50,000 asylum seekers from Greece to Turkey. The asylum seekers, most fleeing from the Syrian civil war, will then be placed in an archipelago of detention centres. That does not sound like a book title at all, does it, Jacob? Yeah, it's like... The, the, the Gulag archipelago. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, you know, the acting Spanish Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy of the Conservative People's Party defended the agreement saying, things are getting better, we have a procedure. I really, do, I'm really not sure what he was, what he meant by that. Uh, the procedure to start processing the refugees in, in concentration camps. He described Turkey as a safe place for refugees and said EU-Turkey agreement had been improved by inclusion of clauses from the unanimous, uh, previous unanimous decision of the Spanish uh, Parliament. Uh, what is even more bizarre is Rajoy actually invoked the. I invoked Ahmed Ben Bella, the historic socialist leader of Algeria, uh, when he said he, he described the Mediterranean as a vast lake lapping to the north on a golf course and to the south on the paddock of shanties, adding that those Europeans who thought they could live calmly behind their walls in the face of such a re- reality were, mis- were, were mistaken. We face a problem that will be with us for a long time, a problem that we have to solve together, because otherwise it could affect basic aspects of principles of the EU. This is probably one of the most bizarre statements about refugees I've ever heard in my life. It's, um, well, at least, at least it sort of of shows, um, well, you know, this whole sort of um, phobia around refugees in Europe is just, you know, staggering, of course. What was what was you know strange um, you know going to Australia context is you know um, our refugee policy is completely inhumane and um, we've actually been we've previously been condemned by European governments um, for our refugee policy despite the fact that you know Europe right now is in sort of this disarray that they are starting to cave in to those same sort of terrible refugee policies that we're doing in Australia. Yes, yes, of course. Well. Uh, not just that, but also actually now starting to m- at, uh, actually deport refugees back to danger on a massive scale. Yeah, you know, on such a massive scale. Thankfully, though, thankfully, though, in uh, in Spain there's been some very active resistance in Parliament, unlike here in Australia. Uh, Podemos spokesperson Pablo Iglesias and Javier Domen. Six. I'm sorry. I I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My Catalan isn't that isn't that great. Spokesperson for the um, uh, Together We Can. Condemned the agreement as floating human rights conventions as well as the Spanish Parliament's own position. They were also joined by Alberto Carthon, the spokesperson of the United Left, which has taken out a lawsuit against Rajoy for uh, conniving in the violation of um, human rights by backing the EU-Turkey deal. So there's, uh, there's, there's been sort of active resistance by the by the emergent left. In Spain, in Spain, they're really trying to, uh, you know, create an alternative to to this sort of uh, this policy of just, of just, you know, exploitation, demonization of refugees there. So it's really great to see, and something that we need to see happening here yeah. as well. Alrighty, you're listening to Green Life Radio, and it is breakfast on 3CR once again on a Friday. Uh, okay, on the line we have got Spike who is involved with the Bendigo Street uh, occupation. Hey, so, hello, Spike. It's um, Jacob here. How's it going? Good. I'm good, mate. How are you going? Yeah, very good. Yeah, so um, I wanted to ask you, you know, you know um, how's really, you know, just to give a kind of current update on how the occupation is going at this point? Um, look, the occupation's going well. We've been able to force 
the hand of, without them admitting it, of course, but we've been able to force the hand of the state government and raise awareness of the fact that they've been sitting on um, uh, 113, up to, uh, well, up to, well, but maybe 130 empty properties for the last two and a half years and, and raise public awareness that they've kept them vacant um, and what could possibly be um, a way to... They've been waiting for the increase of uh, property prices to sell them off. Mm-hmm. In a housing crisis, mind you, where there's 25,000 homeless people and 35,000 people on the public housing waiting list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, just, that's definitely kind of like rather sort of despicable. You know, from my yeah my experience of you know, I've all been supporting the occupation and um, you've um I've noticed you said something previously. You know, I, I want to ask you a question about this, but you've said that um, there's a sort of uh, the, the nature of you know what we're kind of doing at the occupation is like very sort of empowering. You know, um, for activists, you know. Um, to sort of take control of, the, uh, and I would like you, I would like to ask, you know, um, to tell us, you know, tell us more about, you know, how, um, the occupation has been empowering and how, and what it's sort of demonstrating. That's a, that's a great question, mate. Look, it's showing that members of the community don't need to wait cap in hand for the government to take action. It's empowering because it, it illustrates that when people, when members of the community come together, and contribute whatever abilities, talents that they have, amazing things can happen. We've shown that where there was an empty house um, that was like, it's been described as a ghost town, um, uh, a vibrant, uh, uh, vital uh, uh, community has has, uh, developed where that's, that's raising awareness about issues that are fundamental to our basic human needs, like shelter, access to a shower, a kitchen, somewhere to lie down. Um, these are things that I think um, members of the public need to understand that we just can't wait for a vote every four years. That you know, the, it's, it's definitely empowering to an activist to see that these things are possible and to remind other members of the public that, we've, that where there was nothing, there is now a, a vibrant community and that this, this is a great thing. This is a great thing for Melbourne, a great thing for Victoria and a great thing for Australia and the world, hopefully. Yeah. Um, so one of the, another question I wanted to ask is, you know, um, right now you've um, occupied corner of like one house and there's like five other vacant houses on the street. What is sort of the status um, with, with those houses at the moment? Um, they've, to my understanding, they've been alarmed and locked. And um, uh, the difficulty is, is uh, because of where, how long we've been at number two, is opening them up and um, and I suppose then uh, exposing ourselves to more uh, action by the police um, and being able, actually the most difficult thing to do would be to be able to hold all those houses. Because, you know, we, we've, as you've seen, um, that we need to keep bodies in number two to ensure that we can secure uh, number two and number four. Um, but the others, you know, they've, they've alarmed and they've locked up. And it'd be great if we could have more people that are uh, politically um, active or homeless people that are, or, or squatters that are politically um, uh, minded to come down and, and try and uh, open up those buildings and get them secured. Because I think that's the biggest um, 
challenge we face right now to opening up the rest of them. Yeah. Um, there was apparently, um, I was unfortunately able to make the meeting, but apparently you've had, there was some new information about the lease of number two from DHS. What, um, what kind of update can you give us on that? Oh, look, mate, they've been playing, you know, we've had people from Vic Roads saying that that was their property. Then we had someone from Magpine there saying that they were managing a property. And then the DHS is now saying that they've been leased a property from another arm of government. Um, yeah, they're saying, they're telling us that we're stopping and uh, families from moving in. And, um, you know, that that's... that they Someone came down from the Salvos... Uh, no, from the DHS and Vic Roads with, and, and asked us to vacate because we're stopping, uh, families from moving in. And, and that's, you know, how one house, uh, is stopping, uh, you know, uh, you know, there's 11, 11,000, 1100 women were turned away from the YWCA last year. So how, uh, and eighty and seventy percent of them were facing domestic violence. How that number two is going to uh, provide a solution to that problem has got me gobsmacked, and most of us gobsmacked because they've been sitting on them since 2014. These did, house, the end of 2014. Did you suggest that they go into one of the places next door instead? That's empty. Oh look, mate, it's it falls on deaf ears. They mm. they act as if they don't. They got no idea that these houses have been empty for so long. They they look at you with wide eyes as if they don't know what's going on. And, you know, anyone that reads the papers can see that the, the message has changed. Like, um, we may use these out, the 113 properties, an apartment block and 18 commercial properties to um, maybe use to uh, house the homeless. Then there's another story in the... Uh, then, then there's a line, another line of um, argument that says, well, in 20... Uh, that the houses could be sold off in uh, 2015. Uh, so, and and then they, and then there's another line of um, argument that says that they've been that the 20 houses have been given to the magpies. This is just a lack of clarity and a lack of transparency by um, government, uh, and, and it shows complete contempt for the electorate and, and the people in the uh, Victorian community. Well, I, I think. Um um, you know, the sort of real kind of, kind of demand really should, you know, all these vacant housing, um, should be turned into public housing. Just that should be given to, to people who need it. And, um, I, I guess one of the criticisms I've had with, you know, social housing is it, it, is it's put in the hands of a private company, um, that doesn't actually put the, um, put the, um, doesn't actually take that sort of line that, you know, housing should be a right to everyone. And, um, um, I wanted to ask sort of like a question, you know, what do you sort of think like, you know, the, what is the, f- you, you think the future prospect, you know, to wrap it up, you know, what do you think is the future kind of prospects for the campaign and where do you kind of want this to go, you know, what is the final kind of outcome that you want out of this? Look, we, what we want out of this is um, for these houses, that, look, the demands are that the, the release of all information relating to the current ownership of all properties acquired by the East West Link, you know, full transparency, mm. that the houses be used, the houses on Bendigo Street be used, be made into genuine public housing now located to some 35,000 people on the public housing waiting list and all unoccupied properties acquired for the East West Link that are still managed that are still in the government's possession to be added to the public housing register, 
and for Martin Foley to come down and speak to people's experience of homelessness and, and Andrew's government to outline what they're going to do about the 25,000 people that were homeless in light of the 80,000 occupied dwellings in Melbourne. And I, and I think that we need... And, and with this um, push in the, in the newspapers recently um, to turn uh, vacant housing into uh, support for women fleeing domestic violence, I think that as long as they're uh, public housing and not social or community housing, um, I think that's something that, we, that, that needs to be something that we continue to hold the line on. Because um, social housing leaves people in the hands of faith-based organisations mm-hmm. and that have their own sort of criteria for, uh, you know, to be entitled to these housing. It doesn't protect your human rights. You know, there's no security of tenure. Community housing is uh, creeping privatisation of public housing assets. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and, that's, and, and I think that's what we need to remember, that these, these properties that were bought, and that the the money that was spent on them didn't come out, it wasn't conjured up magically. This came out of consolidated revenue and our taxes. And so as members of the community, we deserve to have a say in what happens to those houses. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's this ownership thing's ridiculous. It sounds, it's like a Panama dodgy bank account for people to hide their money from taxes. That's yeah. right, mate. And that's, that's what's happening. Shell organisations that all claim to be the owner. Yeah, and they—they—that's why we're saying they need to—they need to, um, you know, show us exactly what's happening. These are—we have as much—we have a right to know what is happening to public assets that have been paid for with public monies. And I think uh, members of the, you know, Victorian Australian community need to. <laughs> need to become aware that, you know, and, and they need to be reminded that, that, that these properties aren't privately owned. They're public assets. Mm. And so they need, we, we deserve and we actually demand to have a say in what's, what they're used for. Mm. And they shouldn't have been left empty. You know, some of them have been, have been empty since the end of 2014. Mm. And, it's, and what are they waiting for, the prices to go up? Do they really just want to flog them off? I do they want to use them for domestic violence victims? Or should they, or, you know, or, or are they going to um, use them? We, we demand they use them for public housing. So, you know, um, we, we need some clarity on what's happening. And we're hoping, uh, back to your question, the future prospects are that we hope that we can hold out and force their hands, just like we have without them um, uh, admitting it, um, to, to do something um, with these houses that actually they promised three years ago. Mm. Mm. All right, so yes, um, thanks, um, thank, um, thanks for your time, Spike. That it was very, very informative um, interview. And um, I'm just one sort of last word. What, what um, just um, what can sort of people do to support the campaign? Like, um, you know, um, apart, apart from like you know, obviously visiting the occupation, which you know I'm trying to do on a regular basis, and um, is there any sort of specific sort of ne- things you need at this point? Um, look, mate, we I think sorry, Jacob, uh, but we need we need people we, we need the support of the community, not not uh, not only just for people to come around and if people want to come and cook a meal, hang out and talk about the issues, that's fantastic. What we really need is for people in uh, whether they work in homelessness, especially in homelessness, um, in, in in services. 
uh, for homeless people and, 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 and supporters of public housing to come out because we're going to be making a call for people to come out to a, a big public meeting to show the state government that this isn't a, an issue that's going to go away. Yeah. We, we're not going to accept creeping privatisation of assets that belong to the community. And I think, um, uh, yeah, people want, people need to come out and join us and, and display their solidarity. Thanks for that. For real. Thank you, mate. All right. Keep it staunch down there, Spike. Thanks heaps for uh, having a chat to us and giving us an update. No worries, mate. Cheers. Alrighty. And, yeah, that was Spike talking about the the occupation of, of housing down in Bendigo Street. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's about it for another week. Stick around because Beyond Zero Emissions Radio are uh, going to come in and do their weekly show. And stay tuned to 3CR and keep it staunch out there. Yeah. Cheers, Jacob. Cheers, Mum. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks. It's been a great program. It was a great program today.